1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I am here in New York City. We are joined today by a couple of leading lights who can talk to us about what's going on in Ukraine. Of course, you may know we talked about Ukraine on Tuesday as well, but it's a big story and we're going to keep talking about it because it keeps changing. So I'd like to welcome to the show first uh, our friend Tom Nichols of the Atlantic and of the War College. How are you doing today, Tom?
2: I'm very well, David. Thanks for having me.
1: I saw today you noted on Twitter that your job is to depress people. We're, we're, we're counting on you.
2: Yeah, I will do my best to maintain my undefeated title of Dr. Buzzkill.
1: <laughs> and uh, to cheer us all up, we have with us General Mark Hartling, who at one point commanded the U.S. Army in Europe and has been a commentator that you see regularly on the
3: television on a lot of things. How are you today, Mark? Great, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'll try and counter Tom's uh, negativity with all my optimism right now. Well,
1: uh, we're, we're we're counting on that. And at some point, our, uh, our friend and co-host on Thursdays, Dr. Kavita Patel, will appear. She is on her way here from the hospital, I guess, or wherever she was doing her work last. In any event, we you know we want to talk about Ukraine and where it is. And I want to start, uh, let me start with you, Tom. But, you know, there's a lot of talk, you know, how's the Biden administration handling this? And there's a lot of talk about the Germans and there's a lot of talk about Putin. There, there hasn't been a lot of talk in the U.S. about how the Ukrainians are handling this. And I, I did get an email from a friend of mine who's a kind of a Ukraine specialist. And she said that Zelensky has been you know, handled it terribly and that he is a in, he's incredibly incompetent. And I don't know enough how to judge this. I respect her. But I was just wondering what your take is on how they've been handling it.
2: Well, to judge the environment in Ukraine from long distance, which, you know, is necessarily the case, I think they've become fatalistic, I think. And and I understand that. I understand that, you know, the that the average Ukrainian says, you know, we live next to this big, dangerous country. We're never going to be safe as long as Vladimir Putin's in charge. War could come at any day and that's what they've all been living with since the war really began back in 2014. I think it's really important to note when people say, gee, are the Ukrainians worried about Russia starting a war? You have to remind them, Russia already started a war. It's in progress. The only thing we're really asking is, is Russian going to widen this war and really push hard to try and topple the government or take more territory? As far as Zelensky goes, you know, this is where I, I wrote about Zelensky a bit in my last book about democratic change, and elections have consequences. you know you can criticize Zelensky all day long, but what did anybody expect when you took a, the main actor in a comedy, a sitcom, and you made him president? I mean, you know people say, "Well, Zelensky's really handling this incompetently." Well, what do you think was going to happen? This is not somebody who you know, has been toughened and steeled by years of Government service and experience to handle a war with some very tough and wily characters in the Kremlin. I'm not sure what Zelensky could be doing better because I think, and this I'll extend this to Biden as well, I don't think anybody has control of this situation except Vladimir Putin. And I think we kid ourselves if we think we have that many levers, either in Kyiv or in Washington to deal with a guy who who increasingly i think does things for reasons that are buried in what passes for his soul. Well
1: Mark, I you know I think that you know tees up the next question kind of well because you know it's indisputable that Tom is right right now the guy who's going to decide what happens next is Putin and all anybody else can do is try to influence his behavior. The Biden administration has tried to do so through negotiation has tried to do so by pulling the NATO allies together into some kind of unified group, although there's you know, the usual kind of herding cats quality to that. And they've tried to do so in a way that's somewhat different from the way that the Georgia situation and the Crimea situation was by taking some proactive steps in terms of putting troops on alert, moving uh, material, including lethal web, uh, material into Ukraine, announcing kind of scope of sanctions in advance. Are there other tools we're not using? Have we pulled every lever? Is it now just up to us to sit and watch whatever Putin does?
3: No, I don't, I don't think so, David. And, I, and if you don't mind, I'd like to comment on what Tom said, because I agree with him to a degree. Having having been to Ukraine within the last couple of years, it's been interesting because like Biden taking over an administration that was fraught with disaster from the previous administration with uh, an increasing amount of corruption within the U.S. government, I had a, a disavowal of the rule of law. That's what Zelensky also took over, except it was much worse. The corruption in Ukraine has certainly gone down since the time I was commanding in Europe. It was one of the biggest factors. In fact, I could tell you a story about wanting to take the secretary of the army to an exercise in Ukraine and telling him about the corruption in that in that nation in 2011. And he said, well, then why are we partners with them? And I said, well, because we want to try and help them go beyond corruption. And I think that has happened. You also have in that country a younger generation of not only soldiers who have been fighting this war and dying at the cost of 15,000 on the Eastern Front, but you've seen the younger soldiers commit to the military and commit to patriotism, and at the same time, the members of parliament doing the same thing. But unfortunately, as Tom knows, they have a history of, of being overseen by Soviets and having been trained in Russia, And until they get that older tranche of individuals out of their government, out of their military, they're still going to have problems. So, having said that, what I kind of see truthfully is Zelensky was trying to take it up inside of a country at war with a decreasing, hopefully, amount of corruption, but with some problems from the population. Biden taking the same kind of government after the Trump administration and trying to repair a NATO alliance, get back on track in several areas eliminate some of the corruption that's been in government, you've seen two politicians somewhat come together. And and what I see right now is as the Biden administration has coordinated with both our NATO allies and the Ukrainian government in some of the actions he's been taking, I think it's actually been extremely reaffirming. And that's a long prelude to answering the question you asked me. What do I see as problematic right now? Two things. You know, everyone right now is focused on the military actions, the, the battalion tactical groups that Russia has, the small number of 8,500 forces going into the NATO response force. That's not the big deal in my view. I think you're going to see early on if there is any kind of incursion, it's going to first come with cyber and that may be happening right now. And secondly, you we've got to watch and, and we haven't seen a whole lot of reporting about the, the, the feelings of the Russian oligarchs. Tom has said several times in his writings that we're dealing with an authoritarian kleptocracy, and we are. You can't treat that not like a normal government. There was a great piece in Moscow Times this morning talking about how some of the oligarchs were starting to teeter, but they frankly didn't go over the edge yet. Well, I, I think we need to start pushing them from an economic standpoint to realize they're about to go over the edge. And at the same time, we better be very careful about the cyber attacks that I think may be coming.
1: Tom, you're nodding. I don't know whether you're nodding about the cyber attacks or the oligarchs being tipped over the edge. Do you think there's more we can do to lean on the oligarchs, the people closest to Putin before he does something?
2: I was nodding at uh, both of those. And I think Mark's absolutely right to view this as a continuum of war rather than something that has a start and a stop date, because it's it's ongoing. It's happening. It's already begun. I just want to respond for a moment and say I take I take Mark's point absolutely about the mess Zelensky waded into. My only point is, you know, when you take a complete political novice and you throw him into the deep end of the pool, I don't know what anybody was expecting him to do at this point, especially, you know, I mean, dealing with Vladimir Putin is a game for professionals, not for amateurs. The two things. First, yeah, the cyber attacks. I assume that's just that's part of living with Russia these days. But the bit about the oligarchs, I think, is really important because Putin does not. He's not Stalin. Even Stalin wasn't Stalin. You know, every every Soviet leader, every Russian leader. I mean, it is a big country and it requires a lot of people to administer it. And this is more like a mafia where, you know, if you start peeling off the underbosses, the boss is going to have problems. He can't run it without the underbosses. You know, make no mistake, the Kremlin is full of some very ambitious, very ruthless men who are not just poodles for Vladimir Putin. They have their own interests. They have their own bases of power. They have their own bank accounts and arrangements and and things that keep them where they are. And I think threatening that is something we ought to do. You know, I'm not the first to point this out. Dave, my Atlanta colleague, David Frum, among others, had said, kick their kids out of school in London. Russian oligarchs should not be able to support a war in Europe and disrupt the international system and, and destroy the post World War II order and then swan around in Monaco and, and Cyprus and London, owning tons of real estate and sending their kids to the finest school. They need to know that there are consequences for starting a war in the middle of of Europe. And I think, you know, we need to to think about that more, uh, more carefully. I'm not sure how much we can do against Putin. He's got, he's a little more armor plated than the others, but even Putin doesn't want his people to know where his money is and how rich he is and, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. So, you know, the people that are talking about a military opposition to this, I think are out of their gourds. We're not going to go marching into Ukraine. We're not going to, you know, parachute into Kiev or any of that stuff, in part because we don't want to start World War III, but also because Kiev is not a formal U.S. ally. That's a big undertaking under any circumstances. But I do think we can play the same game the Russians are playing, and we can make things hurt, and we ought to.
3: You know, David, if if I can comment on one thing Tom said, because I think it's critically important. We view conflict very different than the Russians do, and Tom knows this because he studied them. We view war and peace. They view it as constant competition. And you know what, what I'm concerned about is there is not gonna be a blinking, if you will, by Putin on this whole situation. He's gonna look at other ways to uh, manhandle both NATO and Ukraine, even if he does pull out, pull out of a military threat. That's what concerns me the most. This, this isn't gonna stop with him pulling back if he does. And I think he will. But it's going to continue on this way.
1: Well, I mean, what you said there is a a big deal because you said, I think he will. And I have to say, I've spent a lot of time in Washington in the past few days talking to senior people in the U.S. government. And they may be wrong, but they think he won't. They think he is going to proceed, or at least they're planning based around the assumption that he will. And that I think is, you know, is probably the right way to plan. You know, you, you anticipate the worst case. And I, and I want to talk a little bit about what they're planning around. You've seen all the estimates of the numbers of Russian troops and what is it? 60 battalions and 120,000 mm-hmm. people and then another 20, 30,000 separatists inside Ukraine and whatever the bellow are going to do. But you know, they've looked at a variety of scenarios. There are Russian troops that can come in from the south. There are Russian troops that can come in from the east. There are troops that can come in from the north. There is the possibility, they talked about, of a lightning strike from the north to Kiev in order to bring down the government or at least get the government to capitulate to them. There's a possibility of a massive invasion across The eastern part of Ukraine, right to the Dnieper River, right up to Kiev, which will allow them to then assert control over certain areas of Ukraine, control that they might not give back or they might only give back partially. Those are the scenarios they're talking about. But every single one of those scenarios changes one big thing for Putin, which is at that point, he's in a fight. At that point, he doesn't control all the variables. At that point, you know, he has to contend with Ukrainian resistance. He has to start seeing his own troops taking casualties. A plan to do something in a week can turn into a number of weeks or a number of months. Every army in the world has has seen this. If he strikes, what do you think is most likely? And do you think that the resistance is going to be tough enough to make Putin feel like he's made a mistake.
2: Mark's the general here, but I, I, and so I'll leave the operational stuff to him. But I, looking at it as a political matter, I think, David, you, you're asking the right question by talking about if Putin goes, we're not really defining what we mean by goes. Right. I mean, right. it's everything there, from there were several scenarios. there. Right. You know, it's everything from a short, sharp shock to, you know, Red Dawn scenario to the Dnieper and, and onward. If I had to guess and, you know, this is I sh- you would think as a former Sovietologist, I would never make predictions anymore. But my guess is that he does not want iPhone, you know, smartphone footage of Russian soldiers fighting house to house, getting blown away by fellow Slavs in Ukraine who are going to fight purely because they're on their own ground, who may not hate Russians, but are going to fight because they're simply not going to tolerate, you know, Russians marching through their their streets. And the alternative to that, that I think people, I've brought this up a few times, that I think people need to think about there is a ton of things he can do to inflict gigantic casualties on the Ukrainian military with air and artillery in a kind of a shock and awe approach that then he can then hope collapses the government in Ukraine or causes chaos. But no matter how that ends, he's leaving himself in a position with these forward now supply units, medical units, and other assets. That as Mark is pointing out, you know, this just peters out rather than starts and stops. He will be in a position to go to war from a standing start at any moment for the foreseeable future, which means that every time there's negotiations or problems, he is now in the position where Putin can say, well, I can go to war in the next 24 hours if I really want to, which I think is going to be part of this. He can reinforce all these areas he already controls. He's going to put in more supply to those areas. He's going to cycle guys in and out of there faster now and get them more acclimated to those areas, which is, you know, a smart thing to do. So I think, you know, if we're expecting the World War II house to house, you know, Stalingrad 2.0, I think we're expecting the wrong thing. I'm much more worried about a kind of a quick, sharp, violent attack that then Putin gets to look magnanimous about and say, all right, I hear the cries of the international community. You know, I'll back off of this. But after he's already inflicted a ton of damage, I could be wrong about this. You know, predicting Putin's behavior is crazy talk. But that's what I'm that's what I'm most concerned about.
1: I I want to hear your response, Mark, but I want to just add, uh, add a couple of things, because some of the things Tom talked about are things that I heard in these conversations as well. One of them is Putin's two primary goals are in order. One. To produce a political change within Ukraine. And number two, if he has a military goal, it's to do as much damage to the Ukrainian military as quickly as possible. It's not to seize land necessarily. I think he sees the political goal as a way of getting them to say, well, we don't want to join NATO, or we're not going to be hostile, or we're going to make a couple eastern regions more autonomous so that they're less of a problem. Anyway, what are we going you know, to with the know, scenarios I, I, in play?
3: Yeah, I'll address that first, because I think that you just made a very important point, David. And I don't think his primary objective is to have a political change within Ukraine. His primary objective is to have political change within Europe. And, and that's what's so devastating and what will be counter to what he's trying to do. He's using, in my view, he's using Ukraine as a tool to bring about change throughout the European security environment. But what I'd say is, as as a guy who has studied uh, military art for over 30 years, I'm going to turn to the science side of this and reflect on something I learned a long time ago. And it seems to be true now in every war that I've studied, that power, using a scientific equation of power equals resources times will, and then you put an exponential of alliances you certainly have a power on on the face of it from the Russian military standpoint. You know, 100 battalion tactical groups surrounding Ukraine is certainly powerful. The weapons they have, the resources they have is certainly powerful. But I don't think the Russian military has the will to maintain the kind of strike Tom was just talking about. And from what I've seen in Ukraine, they do. They have a renewed patriotism. And a desire for their democratic norms and their sovereignty that most of the West did not see 20 years ago. And in addition to that, what I'd say when you're talking about that, that power times will with, with an exponential of the alliances, you've got 30 countries who I, I think this current administration has pulled together relatively well so far. There's, there's still barriers and blockades and different uh, approaches as you would expect in an alliance like NATO. But you see, especially the Eastern countries, who have all lived under a Soviet aggression in the past, who know what Russia does, they are not willing to allow this to happen either. And uh, Talking to some of my friends, specifically in the Baltics and Poland, but also in countries like Romania and Bulgaria and Croatia and Moldova, I mean, you could go down the list of the countries, and especially the Eastern Bloc, how they're viewing this they don't see it the same way the United States does. They know we have to stand up as an alliance again. And and what I'd say is, Putin has made a horrendous mistake, two, two actually, and this has been written about in the last couple of weeks. The first mistake is that he has seen the United States as being weary and worn out from their Afghanistan withdrawal. And I think he's been surprised by President Biden and his staff and what they have done, number one, And number two, he thought NATO was in shambles. And and anytime you have an organization in shambles, when you start pulling them together to face a crisis, they start coming together. And that's what I've seen in NATO the last couple of weeks. It's it's been fascinating.
1: What Mark just said is what I wrote in a column that I had in the Daily Beast. And I essentially said, you know, I think uh, the administration's done about as well as they can do, given the circumstances and that. Putin has made a blunder because that, you know, if his primary goal is to send a message to Europe and to get Europe to back off or to test Europe and to show that they're not resolved, he hasn't been successful. And um, and you responded that you were not as sanguine as I am. This, of course, gives me pause because you know more about these things than I do. But I wanted to give you a chance to explain why you weren't as sanguine about what we've just talked about.
2: Well, it's funny, because I was, I was going to interject and bring up your, your piece and say, I'm not as gloomy as I seem about this, although I know that's my designated role now. And I, I want to kind of footstomp something Mark just said, which is the one thing that's coming out of this that the West should feel a bit hopeful about. No one has made a better case for the future of NATO than Vladimir Putin. I mean, it's yeah. really remarkable that... I mean, here I am, right, a guy that, you know, 30 years ago I was writing, don't, you know, don't uh, expand NATO to incautiously take in Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and then slow it down. And, you know, I, I was arguing for closer relations with Russia, tamp down all the Cold War talk, you know, and here I am in 2022, practically wanting to hang a NATO flag in my office again, <laughs> um, because the guy who talked me out of all of that stuff and has talked me into being a cold warrior again is Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. So on this, David, I think you and Mark are right. I'm just not as optimistic that they're pulling together as fat. Maybe I just maybe my expectations are a little higher. I mean, I'm kind of I'm still kind of chapped about the Germans. I I, I think that, you know, when Mark talks about not everybody's on board, I think getting the Germans to where they need to be is really important. When the Germans have to fire the head of their navy for being too pro Putin, that's a problem. You know, that's why I'm a little less sanguine about this. But on the other hand, you know, this is like 1975, I, I would argue. If people want a historical analogy, we were at the bottom of our power. We've been chased out of Vietnam. Gerald Ford has to go to Brussels to plead with with um, NATO to stay together. And by 1980, 81, NATO is back on track. And as unified as even Jimmy Carter is telling to take new nuclear weapons and upgraded weapon systems. The guys in the Kremlin with that Soviet mindset that Putin has are just so adept at proliferating their own enemies and solidifying their own yeah. enemy alliances against them by their own stupidity that it is really remarkable. And I think that is, I agree with you both. Putin has managed to do that. I think in this respect, Tom,
1: you have failed in your duty to depress us all.
2: <laughs> um,
1: but but I, I'm going to I'm going to end on that uh, semi positive note there, although, you know, having, having having worsening tensions or more resolve on both sides in Europe is not necessarily that heartening. We will come back to this. I suspect we will be with this for a long, long time. And hopefully both of you gentlemen will join us. But for now, thank you, Mark. And thank you, Tom. For everybody out there who is listening, this is when we take our normal break. And those of you who are listening, who aren't members, we say farewell, have a good time. If you want to become a member, go to the DSRnetwork.com and click membership. And then you'll be able to hear the the rest of this podcast. And the rest of this podcast is going to turn to the other big news story of the week, which is Stephen Breyer's announced retirement today. And what is going to happen next, where we will be joined by both uh, Katie Barlow and uh, Harry Littman. So we'll be back with that in a moment. For now, thank you, Tom, and, and, and thank you, Mark. We'll see you soon. Okay, so we're going to begin now with the second part of our podcast. And as I indicated in the first part, we are joined today by uh, uh, two very smart folks who join us frequently. One from uh, a sister podcast here, Words Matter, hosted by Katie Barlow. How are you today, Katie?
0: I'm well. How are you?
1: Very good. Very good. And another uh, noted podcaster and uh, commentator of note on such issues, uh, Harry Littman. How are you doing today, Harry? Pretty
4: well. Thanks, David. Good to be here.
1: And we also seem to have, for this second half of our podcast, my co-host on, th- on Thursdays, who's now been released from jail or wherever she was for the first half of the podcast, and that's Dr. Kavita Patel. Are you okay, Kavita? Is everything good?
5: Yeah, it's it's uh, it was it was jail actually. It was COVID jail because I had a an exposure, and they wanted to like t- they wanted to honestly, it was a cover your ass moment in medicine. They wanted to test all of us to to like so that if I was negative and someone quote infected me then we would know. Or if I had already been positive and I infected someone else, then we would know. And and it was hilarious because I'm like, I I was like, I have to be somewhere. They're like, where do you have to be? I have to do a podcast. <laughs> that, that didn't get me a lot of support. But, you know, it was Harry, Katie. If I had said it was this crew, I probably would have gotten a lot more sympathy. But
1: you were so. tested. So Harry and Katie are safe, right?
5: They probably they've been vaccinated where none of us are safe, apparently. So, yeah. yes, we're 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 all rolling the dice there. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, yeah. Don't even make jokes. The people, people <laughs> some, we will be kicked off of some platform for even making the joke. OK, so. My first questions uh, are not going to um, come as a big surprise. I'd really just like the takes of Katie and, and Harry as to what's happened on the Supreme Court. This week, what happened today in the White House with the Breyer announcement, and you know, which it turned into kind of, I don't know, old home week with Biden and Breyer, you know, recollecting their favorite events of 1983, but the implications extend out now for another three decades, perhaps. So, Katie, what do you think's going on?
0: Well, I haven't had a chance to watch the official announcement, although I heard Breyer was pulling a classic Breyer uh, with one of his delightful speeches, and then he actually looked like he was enjoying it which i hope is the case in his retirement we also just started to get statements out from the justices saying similar things about his time on the bench but it's not unexpected we have been planning this actually you know for a year for those of us that have had the pre-writes and the pre-tiktoks and the preparations for this retirement it's interesting timing but i think uh, given the world that we live in and what's coming up in the next few months before November, not unexpected, but I do think, and it's not going to change the court fundamentally, it's still going to be a 6-3 court, but I do think it's going to change a few things pretty significantly on the court, more so from his replacement, whoever that may be, and we can talk about that. So it's a big deal. Harry? So
4: I agree with most of that. Let's see. I would say it's noteworthy timing right? He was really under fire. You must retire. You must retire. And he was trying to hold it at arm's length. I think he very much didn't want to seem that he would step down under any kind of popular or political pressure. But the traditional time to announce retirement is the end of the term in June. And I think announcing it now shows a sensitivity to the need to have a successor uh, chosen before things get too close to the shadow of the midterm. So in that sense, he was, you know, very much doing the right thing. And I think just thought of that, but what's the uh, phrase? Nothing becomes him as as much in this world as his leaving it. I I, I don't want to go that far, but it stands in marked contrast to Ruth Bader Ginsburg who lionized in other fashions, but really who, stuck around. And as a result, we have the monolithic court case referring to. The one thing I'll add about today, I was there in 94 for his nomination speech. And it is unusual to have a kind of odd lang syne speech for a retiring justice, but not for a, for one who's being nominated. And he was, as he was today, very professorial and and, you know, leaning over the podium but he was very he kind of staked his claim as a pragmatist as a classical liberal you know the law is there to help people and he was very optimistic today he was also upbeat or pronounced himself an optimist in tone but whereas in 1994 he had he had delivered these he had said where but in America could you be so confident that in a 100 years you'll have a free and fair election for president and vice president? Words that seem poignant and ironic today. He actually today, while upbeat, read from the Gettysburg Address. And we are now engaged in a civil war to see how long a nation so conceived can endure. Those were not words chosen by happenstance. And it really, to me, drove home the surprisingly grave situation we have found ourselves in in these last couple of
1: years. Let me turn it to Kavita. I, mean, I have some thoughts on that, but let me turn it to Kavita. Yeah.
5: Well, I mean, I'm dying to. So look, there's been uh, much written about. Uh, I actually know several of these uh, smart, strong women that are in the rumored kind of fielding here, just wondering, given kind of Katanji Brown-Jackson's kind of a lot of people are making a lot out of the Republican votes that she garnered. And how can those same votes turn around? So that seems to clinch things for her. Um, Leandra Kruger, very young, kind of coming out of the Justice Department. And I think she was 37. We were about the same age. And I thought, wow, that's impressive. Maybe she'll be in the Supreme Court someday. She seems a little more moderate to me. I don't know, Michelle Childs. I would have put a fourth person on there who I worked with when we were doing Sotomayor's confirmation, Danielle Gray, and she is a a pretty strong force and has a lot of kind of respect that is now in the private sector. So I am dying of curiosity, kind of uh, just if there's anything, any other people that we would keep an eye on. And actually maybe both of you, if you feel comfortable, do you think that the president put himself into a corner in any way, or is this really just, you know, he's following through? Oh, and then the final thing, I know this is special, there, you know, you've seen the Kamala Harris kind of uh, conversations. I don't put any credence to them, but should we be putting any thought into a universe where Kamala Harris would also want to actually be one of the justices and what that might look like?
1: Let's start with Katie. That, you know, Kavita just asked four or five questions. There. I know. So I'm sorry. It's really around. You try to limit your response to 20 <laughs> minutes. Go on, go on.
0: Sure. So I don't know that Biden has been a particularly unpredictable president. And I don't think that he was a particularly unpredictable senator. And it was interesting, you know, just seeing images of he and Breyer up there today, both of them lifelong public servants that have spent their careers doing these jobs. So I say all of that to say, I don't think what he's about to do is going to be unpredictable. I think there are pretty much two, maybe three candidates. And I think it's going to be one of those. And you said them, I think it's going to be Leandra Kruger or Katanji Brown Jackson or Michelle Childs. And I would put Michelle Childs at a distant third, although I'm, I'm yeah. curious what Harry thinks there. I think there's no way that uh, the vice president becomes a real part of this conversation, except to the extent that she was a part of putting uh, Leandra Kruger on the Supreme Court in California. And so perhaps that is part mm-hmm. of the conversation that's happening in the White House right now about Leandra Kruger. Who, as you pointed out, she's quite young. She's 45 years old. She would be the youngest one on the bench in a long time since Justice Thomas was on the bench. He was confirmed at 43, I believe. Mm-hmm. So it would certainly be uh, remarkable, but I think, I think it's gonna be her or, or Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And I think your point about Judge Jackson, that she has already gotten Republican votes, makes this safe and makes it swift, which seem to be the Democratic priorities. Uh, I think the question then will, is going to be, is there a reason to go with Leandra that outweighs the safety and the swiftness that would likely come with a, a Katanji Brown-Jackson confirmation? And it may be, there may be an affection for her in that White House from Ron Klain or from the vice president or from the president himself. Of course, he's likely going to meet with them. He's already met with Jackson in person. We know for her position to be on the D.C. circuit. So I think it's going to be one of those two. I think the practical choice and the easiest choice in the path of least resistance is Judge Jackson. I think the question is, then, is there something about Kruger that is appealing that outweighs the practicality of that choice? But either one is predictable. And I think Biden is going to go the predictably predictable route there.
1: Yeah, for the benefit of uh, the listeners who, who might think that when we say Judge Brown got a lot of Republican support, she didn't. She got three votes, right? Right.
0: Three votes. Right. She right. had Graham Collins and Murkowski, although so you could argue those are um, what three is a Republican in this day and age? I think also a good question.
5: <laughs> also a good question. I'm not. Sure. <laughs>
1: okay. Although the, those three votes do, you know, minimize the influence that uh, Manchin,
0: that Manchin that
1: and Cinema have. And
0: although we've although, already heard from Manchin that right. it sounds like he's not really going to stand in the way even right. of a nominee who is. As he put it, anyone would be to the left of him, but who is to the left of him? It it sounded like he was signaling at least it did, it um, did. that he was not going to stand in the way of this nominee, but certainly three Republican votes would shore that up.
1: I'm I'm interested in your reaction to this, Harry, and I and, and I would just say, it's uh, Judge, is it Chiles? Is that is, that, yes. is that, that the one from South Carolina? Mm-hmm. You know that Clyburn has already come out and said this is the one I wanted. I got you elected effectively, and we shouldn't be so elitist and pick people from only certain universities. And, and it's, it seems to me that if Clyburn makes a hard push, that's consequential. So what what do you think? Harry?
4: Okay. So let's see. Harris would snatch defeat from the jaws of uh, victory. Just, uh, political belly flopper in a number of ways. I don't know if she would even want the job, would look terrible for Biden, a non, and he said he, he's going to run with her, a non-starter. Jackson and Kruger, and Kruger, so let me also, you know, what, what Katie said, but I'm but um, embellished. You know, three votes is a lot. I think we start, though. Manchin, yes, has already come out and, and indicated Man, neither Manchin nor cinema has ever voted against one of Biden's judges. And so we start with a razor thin, but pretty solid majority. And you heard the Republicans talking yesterday, including Graham. I think they're assuming that the Dems can push this through. And that to me, I know there's a lot of talk about maybe uh, a, uh, you know, contentious nomination. I think they'll talk tough. You know, Josh Hawley and the like will kind of bloviate about liberal activism and and the like. But I think it's in their interest and they know it's in their interest for this to give Biden his victory lap for it not to be. If I have the smallest disagreement and Katie said, I think. uh, Sure. I don't know about Swift. The end of February, which he announced today, that's actually he could do it sooner. And I think he would like and the Republicans would not like so much if this takes a couple. Months. This is a good narrative for him. And he's been on the skids a bit. They want to go back to uh, beating him up on COVID and the uh, economy. And so I, I think he wants to bask in this a bit on the list lists and who are on there. I see those three as well. I've been on the inside a little, and and I know lists can shift a fair bit. They did with Breyer, and they can both shift in a real way, like Breyer. It shifted away from him. He really did seem to be the in, the guy and went when it when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was chosen. And it shifts in sort of phony ways to give a kind of a nod to important power brokers. Nobody bigger here than Clyburn. And, you know, so I think Childs will seem to get serious play, you know, this point of, well, everyone is from Harvard and Yale. Like, it's true. On the other hand, you know, this person's going to have to go up against Gorsuch and Alito and those guys. This is this is where you would like to see those elite skills, I think. Kruger versus, versus Brown-Jackson, it, you know, those three votes, they're not going to have a reason to back away. And that starts it as a foregone conclusion. I do think Kruger, she has bipartisan support. The well-known, very Republican, influential solicitor general, Paul Clement, who says she's the greatest. She did argue up there 12 times. She knows the court. And I think people really respect her. She's been an appellate judge, whereas Jackson is just she hasn't been she hasn't written her first opinion yet. She to me has is a really strong candidate maybe even slightly more strong that said one thing about Harris it's a good example of just what you said Katie his making the predictable choice when he chose vice president we're well and we're in, reliably informed i think he wasn't crazy about her but the politics of it said Kamala Harris and he chose Kamala Harris i think here that as you say if he acts you know predictably the politics do point to Brown, Jackson, just because of those three votes and starting with it, you know, pretty well
1: assured. Did I get everything, doctor? You got, oh, you got everything. You All right. <laughs> oh, oh, you're speaking to doctor. Yeah, Doctor, did he get everything?
4: Yeah, it's did. Spe- they were her questions,
1: you're,
5: David. You're, yeah, out no, of no, the, no. you're out of the box. Yeah.
1: OK, so let's do two more quick rounds of questions. I'll do a quick one and then Kavita can do a quick one. My quick question is, does it make a difference? You know, it's going to be three people in the so-called liberal wing. There are three people now. It has been noted that two of those, uh, they'll be all women, that two of those women will be women of color. Justice Sotomayor will become the senior person in that group. She is certainly quite outspoken. Bringing a Black woman into the group is certainly going to provide a perspective that the court can benefit from. But is it going to make a difference, Katie and Harry?
0: I think it is. It it can't not. And I think for the reasons you articulated, one, a woman is going to take that chair. We will then have four women on the bench getting us closer to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's idea when she asked, she was asked, when will there be enough? And she said, when there are nine. We are losing a justice with nearly three decades of experience and that kind of leadership and institutional knowledge, leaving the court is not easy and that is going to make a difference. And bringing, elevating Justice Sonia Sotomayor as the senior member of the liberal wing of the court, she's already shown fierce capability to lead that wing of the court, but I think elevating her to that role, will see her blossom in it even more. And finally, having a black woman in one of the tightest knit, most locked up rooms in Washington, D.C. and in the country, you know, when the when the nine meet and they take their votes at conference every week, no one is allowed in, no staffers, no secretaries, no one except for the nine, the most junior justice who will be this woman has to get the door if somebody forgot their glasses, right? And having a black woman in that room where no black woman has gone before is important, and not to say that the black woman in America's experience is universal, and it's not. But th- there are just certain things that that representation will absolutely make a difference.
1: Harry,
4: all true, but mainly atmospheric. One uh, and so Breyer is a classic liberal in the sense of believing in government. He actually was the rightmost member of the four when there were four of them. So, the, I, you know, I think any of the people who are generally talked about will nudge the court left. It matters somewhat for Sotomayor to, to take the helm. It's actually going to be an interesting relationship with Kagan, who I think has been sort of establishing herself as the leader of the contingent, even though Sotomayor will have assigning power. But It's a monolith, you know, where the court is out of balance and is going to stay out of balance maybe for decades. The five are unabashed and don't seem to be persuadable in the most important cases. And so one more voice, since it can't change the numbers, can only change in persuasive appeal. And, you know, I don't I don't see it. So in the in the, all every, without everything uh, case says right, atmospheric, very important for America to see it and the like. But in the things we think about of, of the and what the court does, not very much. You know, it rejuvenates, right? I mean, Breyer is yeah. almost of a previous century in manner as well as age. You know, he comes of age in the 60s, kind of importantly, the Warren court and So now we're going to have, you know, a more uh, some some more vigor, but still the same numbers. Doctor,
5: so I've had to do some judiciary hearing prep a a lifetime ago. And I have a question. What question? You know, that no matter what the committee hearing theatrical, no matter how the votes end up, what are some interesting questions or topics from either side, Democrat or Republican, that you're interested in hearing? whoever the nominee's uh, answers around.
0: The Biden administration has already proven an interest in appointing and getting confirmed judges with a diverse background. And we're Mm -hmm. seeing more federal public defenders on the bench than we've seen in years past. I don't quote me on this exactly, but I think he's gotten at least five so far on the bench. and, And I believe Obama got five on the appellate courts over his eight years. So I think he's already ahead of the game there. And I'm interested if it is KBJ to Mm -hmm. hear her talk about that experience as a federal public defender, also her work on sentencing reform. You know, she was on the Sentencing Commission when they reduced sentencing for crack cocaine offenses and having a nominee talk about those things, a Supreme Court justice nominee talk about those things, you know, during the charade, as it's been called, because that's all it really is usually, Mm -hmm. perhaps not lately. I think we'll be historic and will be a, a nice moment for the country to to get to see and, and will be different than perhaps we've seen in, in recent confirmations and certainly recent democratically appointed confirmations.
4: Yeah, so here's a question I'm interested in. Breyer, even though he's seen as a centrist, was famously a non-originalist. He duked it out with Scalia over this question all the time in the originalism the the doctrine of you decide according to the public meeting that the provision had when it passed Kagan has said we are all originalists now and that and the, each of the previous nominees in pretty much lockstep has pledged fidelity to originalism will the you know this uh, nominee might have a real cover since she's replacing Breyer and saying she's not or would they have an interesting Kind of discussion about that, and I guess I'll tell a quick war story that I haven't told at all, but I don't think it's talking out of school. I prepped Breyer, and and here was a question I told him to. to I I had to be the pointy headed guy who went over his writings and asked him about that. And I said to him at one point on a law review article, "So you know what's the point of your saying that?" And he thought, and then Breyer said, "I I think the point of that article." Was to get tenure. <laughs> Not the answer he gave in the committee. But, you know, uh, they really have become routine, predictable. There will be interesting human interest stories. But this one question are you an originalist? And how do you, uh, you know, answer the question of original meaning? What kind of originalist? That's the closest nominees have come to sort of actually giving interesting or meaningful jurisprudential answers. It'll be interesting, I think, to see what
1: this nominee says. It will be interesting to watch it. I think you're absolutely right. This is a, a story that will play out to the benefit of the Biden administration in almost every respect. And perversely, both the good stories this year and some of the bad stories may play out to the benefit of the Biden administration, because if, in fact, The court takes some very unpopular positions like reversing Roe v. Wade that may mobilize the Democratic base as well. So there's going to be a lot of eyes on the court. I will leave this with one final personal observation. And that is, you know, as I was watching Biden and Breyer and as I was thinking about the fact that we had a little surprise this week, which is that Speaker Pelosi said she was running again, which nobody thought she was going to do which, uh, you know, I I, I admire all of these people. They've contributed a huge amount. We need them to fend off the onslaught against democracy right now. I am not trying to push them out the door, but I am delighted that a different generation is going to move into the spotlight here. It is high time. And that is true across the board in Washington. And so I hope Somebody, you know, one of these people steps up and it's it's nice to look to somebody who might be around and influencing events in Washington for the next 30 years or 40 years even. So let's hope that turns out well. For the meantime, we are very fortunate to have been joined today by Katie and by Harry and, of course, always by Kavita. And we're glad you're you know, you're healthy today, Kavita. And uh, we hope that everybody else will join us again soon as we continue to track these issues. And if you want to see what else we've got going on, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And don't miss Talking Feds. Harry's great. Sheldon Whitehouse will be with us this week, a pretty timely
4: uh, guest, along with Bill Crystal and Laura Jarrett to talk about Breyer.
1: Pretty, pretty, pretty good guest list, as you always have. And I have to say, Sheldon Whitehouse is one of the most impressive people in Washington. So definitely worth listening to. And of course, Words Matter with Katie Barlow. What do you have coming up, Katie?
0: Work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> We've oh, only good. been a little busy at slog over the last 48 hours. So now,
1: now you know. <laughs> I want to ask you one last question. I can see in your, in your uh, Zoom window there a mug behind you. Is that a Green Bay Packers logo on it?
0: No, sir. That is the University of Georgia, my friend.
1: Oh, I see. Good. I'm glad to see that you are going with the winner. <laughs> not a born loser. and
0: raised. <laughs> my whole family went there. I was at the game, actually. Were you? Yeah, I've wow. been Home is my prize, along with the win, but that's to be expected.
1: Well, go dogs! All right. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you all again soon. Bye bye.